thank you guys. Uh, so about uh, 2014, Phil Layton and I had a chance to travel to Israel, and I, I think I know some of you guys have been there. I think Ron, I think I think you've been there, and I know Charlie has been there. Maybe some of the other folks as well. So there we were on the. By the way, if, especially with these guys that are you know kind of younger, I, I tend to draw maps. I like maps because I can, especially now that I've been there, I can visualize it. On the west side of the Sea of Galilee is a is a town called uh, Tiberius. Uh, named after uh, Tiberius, a Roman guy. Anyway, so it's Tiberius. Just slightly to the north of that, if I were to guess, uh, three, four, four miles, somewhere in there, is a town called Magdala. Mary of Magdalene, Magdala. That's where Mary was from. Swinging around a little bit for, oh, sorry, I'm going the back way. Swinging around a little bit further to the north is a town called uh, is it Capernaum. I almost said Caesarea. Capernaum, and that's kind of on the northern, uh, slightly. Uh, it's, it's on the northern point of the Sea of Galilee. Over on the far eastern side, now bear with me because there's two different names here, and I don't want to, if I get them mixed up, I'm sorry, uh, is, is the, is the, are the uh, Garrisonate. Uh, I think that's how, I think that's the area over on the eastern side. It's a region, but at one time there was also a town about south, uh, about 30 miles southeast of there that was named something very similar, which they think they kind of got the area, the name of the area from. That's going to be the area over on the east side where uh, Jesus cast the legion of demons into the pigs. A legion being about how many? Anybody know? How many? I don't know. About 6,000. 6,000. And there was a man there. Now, Matthew tells us that there were actually two guys there. That This is not part of my lesson plan yet. Sorry. I've been studying this, though. It's really good. Um, actually, this is. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead a couple of weeks. Sorry. Uh, it, 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 it's amazing to think about 6,000 demons were, were inside of these two guys. But we only, in, in, uh, in Luke's story, we only hear about one. Uh, and so that's where, that's, that's kind of the area that we're talking about. So when Phil and I were there, we were, we were in Tiberias. I think, is that still the name of the city, Phil, that we were at? And so we walked down uh, pretty close to, well, there's a road that goes right along the shore. And then there's some docks out there where boats and stuff were there. This is today, right? I mean, 2014. And so we're sitting there, and the lake was pretty calm. And it was getting close to dusk. And all of a sudden, the winds whipped up. And it was just like, wow. And pretty soon, white caps were, had formed out there. And it was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Because this is like the story that we read about in the Bible, how those winds whipped up and really started tossing those boats that were all sitting in their uh, little docks, or what do you call those things, slips? They were sitting there, and they were really starting to move around and everything else. Now, they're new boats, so you know, typically newer, not 2,000 years old. So typically they wouldn't sink in this. But you can imagine how, how violent that storm was out there. And so there's, there's Phil and I. Uh, and, and as we got to watch the storm, it was just amazing how these winds whipped up. And I used to tell the high school students back in the day that it's so easy for us to kind of lose when, when because we live here in the United States, Shingle Springs, we can't really appreciate the geography and what that area, because we've most likely, high school students have never seen that area, at least with their own eyes. And at that point, I had not either. So it's weird to be able to sit there and, and read about these stories now. This is what's really helpful. Read about these stories now and you go, I know exactly what that looks like. Well, at least, at least today, not 2,000 years ago perhaps, but because uh, you know, obviously things change. Uh, but it was really fascinating to be able to do that. 
Um, so Jesus and the disciples were leaving the western side of the sea and were beginning to travel to the eastern side of the sea. This, this area, like I said, was called uh, the uh, Gerasenes. Uh, this would be the first time that Jesus would travel to a Gentile area to preach the gospel. So over on the east side of the lake, uh, and the lake is about six miles across, uh, what, 14 miles or so deep. So, you know, uh, to me it wasn't, it didn't, didn't seem like it was much bigger than Folsom Lake. It probably was quite significantly bigger. But just, you could see from Tiberias, you could see all the way across and see the hills. I think it's, up, I think it's Syria up there today. And so Jesus tells them, hey, we're going to get in, we're going to get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8. And again, this lesson is on fear and hope, godly fear and ungodly fear, godly hope and ungodly hope. So I know I'm kind of throwing out several terms there for a title, but you'll see what I mean. And I want to break this down um, into, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 39. And this is really two different, two stories, uh, two major themes. <coughs> the first part is Jesus crossing the lake with the disciples. Yes, he's in the boat. This is the time when Jesus was going to be, he, he would be found sleeping in the, in the boat. Uh, it would be later on, not, not too many days, I think literally within uh, maybe, what, 24 hours or so, they would leave the eastern side and travel back to the western side again, and that's where the fun really began. But this is going to be two different stories, the first part being Jesus and the disciples crossing the sea, or the Sea of Galilee. So if I call it a large, call it a lake, sorry, I don't mean to, but it, in my mind it just kind of is. But uh, And then also what happens when Jesus arrives there and he's met by some real friendly folk, some guys that were obviously demon-possessed, and at least Luke's going to tell the story of one man in particular. All right. Well, so I broke this down into two parts. So I'm going to start in verse 22 through 26. And you guys, I know these are stories you know well, but it, it, it's kind of funny. The more you study these things, the more, uh, the more, the more you see how the, the disciples just why they were so scared. Why they were so scared. In fact, on this particular trip, they notice what they will not say. They don't say, truly, you are the Son of God. They would not say that until the next boat trip when they were told, when Jesus told them, get in the boat and go, and while I dismiss the crowds. Okay? So that's actually occurred in Capernaum when they're leaving to go back over to an area just to the, between, between Capernaum and uh, Magdala. And it's not very far, two, three miles. And if you guys remember that story, that's where the, the winds were so violent that they were blown off course three to four miles out, four or five miles out in the middle of the lake. That was that story when Jesus came walking to them on the water, and what did they say? What did they confess at that point? Truly, you are the Son of God. That would be the first time that those disciples confessed. And apparently all of them, including, including uh, 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 what's-his-face, who denied Jesus, or who? Judas, thank you, almost says Simon. Judas. They all confess, truly you are the Son of God. Now, that doesn't mean that Judas was saved. That's not what that means. But they confessed it. Okay, 22 through 26. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Oh, we've seen that. I've seen that. 
And they went, oh, and by the way, not, not, uh, doesn't matter, I'll, I'll get you that. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So they, they finished going the direction they were going, which was on the east side of the lake. Notice the statement that says, let us go to the other side of the lake. I don't want to just blow that, blow over that, because I think that is an important statement when Jesus says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. Uh, what, <laughs> they did not fully appreciate that when Jesus said, let's do this, and let's go there, that they would, in fact, arrive there. These guys were professional, well, several of them, professional fishermen. No doubt, Peter, Andrew, James, John, spent most likely most of their lives, if not literally all of their lives, on that lake. They would have known that lake well. They would have known that when these winds whip up, this is not good. And it's late in the afternoon, and here we are going to the other side of the lake. Winds are whipping up. We are about to all die. And, and what I told you before was uh, later on, within I think, again, a few, few days, the similar circumstance will again occur. But this particular storm was very violent. In Matthew 8.24, which is Matthew's rendition of this story, who was there in the boat, in Matthew 8.24, he calls the storm literally a water quake. Now, I've been in a few earthquakes, nothing bad up here per se, the Bay Area, but you can feel them up here oftentimes, and I know Phil's been in pretty scary violent ones. You thought death is no doubt coming. Matthew describes this as a water quake. Now, I can only imagine what a water quake must be. It must be extremely violent, because Matthew uses those words, and there were other words that Matthew could have chose to, to describe the violent storm, but he picked water quake. Despite its violence, who's in charge of the winds and the sea? Who made the earth and set the stars in place? It's Jesus. There he is, as we saw through that lens of that telescope. Who created those things where even the world and the non-believers go, wow, that, we had no clue that that was there. Who did that? Who said that? And I know that's a rhetorical question. Stars. And they were there. Right? There's the command. Stars. And they were there. There's God. At least that's how, how uh, Moses' rendition of that in Matthew, or in Genesis. Stars. And they were there. Spoke them into, into existence. Uh, Psalm 107, 28, 29 says this. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. This is Psalms. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Isn't that amazing that the psalmist, I don't know who the psalmist was that wrote this, I don't know which guy, uh, but that he prophesied as to what the master of the sea would do. Because the master of the sea was in that little boat with those guys. Now, Phil and I, when we were there, we hit a little museum, and we saw a boat. Phil, tell me if I'm wrong on this. My memory, about from about here to the wall, they had recovered a boat. If you guys have been to the same museum, it was real popular, apparently. They recovered this boat, and they think it was probably the first century, maybe second century, uh, when they, that's how old this boat was. They were not big. It's not like, you know, 
what, 276 people traveling with the Apostle Paul when they have the shipwreck. I mean, that, that's a pretty good sized boat for that many people. But this was a small boat, and they think it was most likely a fishing vessel uh, that they recovered. It's on display there at this museum. And I looked at that and just went, wow, if that thing is accurate, if that's about what it was, 12, 13, sorry, 13 people sitting inside this little boat. And yeah, violent, war, you know, there were no life jackets. <laughs> they thought death was imminent, and they would think that again just a short time later. So what did they lack? What do you think they lacked? What was there? Why, why, master, master, don't you care where about to perish? What were they lacking? Faith. 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 Why? Why were they lacking faith? What What was it that they should have rested on? Because they're human beings. Yeah, they, 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 were, they were human beings without a doubt. They did not fully appreciate that the master of the sea, not only the one that could calm the storm, but the one that brought the storm, who made it. They didn't fully appreciate that this is this is the guy who's in our boat. This is him. Man, what do we have? What do we have to fear when the master of the sea is in here with us? And we have to remember too that he's the one that said, "Let's get in the boat and go to the other side." I think Jesus knew I've got an appointment with two men over there, and I'm not going to miss it. Let's get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side. They lacked faith. That's why Jesus said to them, where is your faith? That's why he asked them that question. Where is your faith? But faith in what? What were they, what were they casting their faith in? Faith they, they, faith they would make it to the other side? Or was it faith that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world? They lacked the second. They lacked recognizing that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world of the world. He was the creator God in their boat with them. They were still reliant upon this boat is not very big. This is a violent storm. Matthew is going to tell us that this was a this was a, a water quake. This is how violent this storm is. They did not put their trust in the master of their trust in Jesus, the master of the sea. I mean, I, honestly, the big picture here is if that storm was having breakers and rollers that were just crushing every boat that it came that, that was out there in the lake or even on the shore, those men would have made it across that lake. Why? Because the master said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. That's where we're going. But they were not yet, not yet, thinking uh, in terms of that. A natural outpouring or expression of that faith in Jesus as the Savior of the world should be the natural response of making it to the other side of the lake. And man, you know, it's so easy for us to sit here and go, what were they thinking? I mean, if, if I were in that boat, I would have been, excuse me, guys, uh, 11 of you were scared. I am not. I am with Jesus. That would not have been it. It just wouldn't have been it. Even with several of these men being professional fishermen and spending most likely all their lives on the Sea of Galilee, didn't appreciate that the master of the sea was with them. This was something they needed to be reminded of when Jesus asked them, where is your faith? That was not, I don't think that was a rhetorical question. I think he wanted them to ponder that, and let's think about that. So they make it to the other side of the lake. And then later on, as I've as you guys know, and I already may mention them, they're going to have this same scenario again, but this time the master of the sea will not be with them for a while. About, most likely about nine hours, they would be out there rowing on their way back when another violent storm ends. 
Well, we can see through the text that the disciples changed their ungodly fear of the storm to a godly fear of Jesus. This was a good thing. Those who do not fear God resist him. They indulge in evil without restraint because they have little respect for God and his ways. So let's look at the next text. So that was helpful for them, obviously. They weren't ready to say, my Lord and my God, and bow down. They were not there yet, but they would be. Let's look at the next section of scripture, uh, Luke chapter 8, 26 through 39. This gets, this is, this is amazing. Then they sailed to the country of the, of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So we're on, we're, now they made it, they're on the east side of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And bear in mind, Matthew tells us this story, but he says there's two guys there. All right. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Wow, somebody that recognized, or something, right, that recognized who Jesus was. There was no doubt in these demons' minds. They knew exactly who he was. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for we for many demons have entered for sorry, for many demons had entered him. And they and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Not yet. But that will come. That will come. But not Revelation says that's gonna come. It's good news. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now listen, we all know that story well, but here comes the neat part that oftentimes, I think we kind of, at least I do, we kind of skim over it uh, hurriedly because that's the cool part of the story. Man, he cast demons, and, well, and they jump in, hit the river, and they, or hit the lake, and they drown. But here comes the amazing part. That was amazing, but here comes even, um, I think, a more amazing part. It blows our mind. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. <coughs> Why? Why would they? Oh, are you kidding me? For they were seized with great fear. Was that godly fear? Not at all. That's fear of this guy is demon. There is something supernatural that this. I mean, my mommy said, give me the heebie-jeebies. This is not. This is something way out there for us. I'm terrified. But if they would have recognized, and most likely some of them will, by the way, later on, if they would have recognized who Jesus was standing in front of them who just did this work, most of them would not have been, well, none of them would have been afraid if they would have fully appreciated that. Then all the surrounding, oh, they, uh, they were seized with great fear. They asked him to leave. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had returned, by the way, they went to Caesarea on the northern end of Sea of Galilee. Not too far, but a, a boat ride. 
So he, so he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. The only guy in his right mind that knew exactly what needed to be done. Lord, I, I, I want to be with you. He, this man was no fool. No fool. He knew exactly what had just happened to him. He lived it. And he was not, he was determined to be with that master of the sea, the master of spiritual demonic forces. He, he wanted to be with Jesus. But, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Listen to the next verses. Verse. This is interesting. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He did, Jesus said, just go, let's see, uh, proclaiming throughout, let's see, return to your home. Just go to your house and tell your, your family, whoever's there, I don't know, mom, dad, who, I don't know, we don't know how this young guy was, or the two of them, we don't know, anything more about him than that. But yet Jesus says, just go to your home and tell them how much God has done for you. And yet, what does this man do? Uh-uh. I'm not only going there, I'm going to go throughout the entire city. It reminds me of the, the woman at the well, right? What did she do? She, uh, I think Shakar, Shakar was the name of the city, that, the town that she was from. What did she do when she got literally saved? She realized, because Jesus flat out told her that he was the son of God. She went and proclaimed it to the entire, to the entire city. And the leading men, you guys know this, the leading men came out and said, and they listened to him and they said, now we don't believe because of what she said. We believe because we've heard him. That's how we believe now. We've already seen how Jesus is the master of the elements, the sea, the wind. But in this text, he is also the master over the supernatural. Here we see Jesus' encounter of another chaotic scene. Matthew tells us that there were actually, like I said, two men that were possessed. Luke only mentions one. Uh, there are several things to note here, but I want us to focus on two types of fear that we see in this text. I've already kind of made mention of those. The ungodly fear of the people from the city and the godly fear of the demon-possessed man. Two different types of fear. One fear says, get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. You are frightening. This is unbelievable. Get away from us. The other, and by the way, when I read that and kind of studied through that, it made me think of, uh, think of uh, Revelation. Rocks fall upon us. We, we want nothing to do with this great God. We see with our eyes, and yet still we refuse to yield to this great God. We want no get away from us, kill us, crush us, make put us into oblivion. We want nothing to do with this great God. And yet, there is a different response. There is a godly fear from the demon-possessed man. What does that godly fear do? It says, I want to be with him. I make no presumptions here, and you guys know this because I think I tell us almost every time I teach, that not everybody sitting here is saved. I just can't do that because I, I don't know. But when, if you are indeed, if, if you are indeed a true believer and you have placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone for <coughs> salvation, a natural response to doing that at the moment that's done is I want to know more about him. I have just put, I just flipped my life, well, I, uh, God just flipped my life upside down, and now I want to know more about him. You guys that are married, did you ever go, okay, now we're married, but uh, eh, I don't really need to get to her, know her, I, husband, sex. I don't need to get to know her that well. Eh, no big deal. We're married. I'll get, you know, whatever. No, you want to know all about them. Why? Because you love them. You care for them. 
you see what the impact that they have on your life, and you want to have that same type of impact on their life as well. I hope that's, you know, if you're married, I hope that's kind of the way you're thinking about that. This man wanted to be with Jesus. And I don't mean it just, I, I don't think it just meant he wants just to hang out and walk with him. No, this man wanted to be with him and say, I am a little sponge, man. Just teach me. Dump on me. I want to know it all. I think that that's what this man, where this man was at. And I think a lot of the disciples, uh, well, ultimately all the disciples, except for one, came to that same place. But I think that may have taken some time because there seemed to be sometimes a little, little less interest from some disciples versus interest by the other ones. That you can see that two different ways of thinking. Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus feeding the 4,000. Andrew, where, where do we, how do we get all this money? What are we going to do? Philip, what do you think we should do? To test them, right? And they're like, well, even 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed all this whole group. So what do we do? Uh, that, that, those are testing. In fact, in the scripture, it says that Jesus said that to test them to see how they would respond. It wasn't that Jesus didn't know the answer, by the way. He knew. It was for them to say, man, this is where I failed. I mean, later on, hopefully they would recall that and go, man, I failed in this area. I, Jesus did that to test me so I would know how I would do. Not so Jesus would be somehow informed. Jesus was already fully informed. So their responses show us that there are different kinds of fear. The fear of believers is a holy awe or reverence of God, which leads believers to hate sin and to come to Jesus. And if you're a true believer, I, I, really, I really pray that that is your situation, that you hate sin. I know, I know that there are times, uh, I confess, that we, we like our sin. Because if we, if, we, if we looked at sin and just said, sin is always bad, it's always bad, it has nothing, it does nothing for me, uh, guess what? We'd never sin. Because we'd go, well, why should I do that? It'd be like saying, oh, I like having my, my, my foot stomped on, so stomp on my foot because it feels, no, you wouldn't like that, so you don't step on my feet. You don't want that. But sin is not that way, is it? James tells us something different. It's alluring, and it entices, and it's like, oh, temporary pleasure oh, actually actually permanent pleasure but that's the lie it's one of the great lies it offers like it's a permanent pleasure possessions a permanent pleasure but in reality is that's a lie it's only temporary and temporary being as in super short it doesn't offer that full satisfaction this man here that demon former demon possessed man this true believer man who was now clothed, who was once naked and out of, out of his mind, this man understood who the master was and he wanted to be with him. He understood where that true joy, that true satisfaction would be. And it's going to be that man getting into that boat and leaving. And I've got to get with him. I'm going there because i got to know all about this guy. But the fear of unbelievers, here's the rest of the folks, the townspeople that said, leave! Get away from us. But the fear of unbelievers is a slavish dread of just punishment from the mighty God. The people from the surrounding towns have the second fear, or the ungodly fear. They wanted Jesus to immediately leave. Bear in mind, this is a Gentile area. This isn't, you won't find Pharisees over here typically, Pharisee scribes. Uh, you, you just don't find them over here. This is Gentile area. So they weren't going to be over in this area. They wanted Jesus to immediately leave. immediately leave. The text says that they were seized with fear. I appreciate that word seized. To be seized means to be taken captive 
buy it. Uh, this would be typically where years ago I would have pulled out a set of handcuffs and handcuffed a student or a kid or something and say, okay, there you go, you're handcuffed. And you know, some of these little kids, the cuffs fall off, they don't get tightened up, but that's another story. Uh, so I'd handcuff them and say, listen, now this is how sin is. You can be handcuffed and you can say, oh, I can still share the gospel, I can do all of these things. Uh, even though you're handcuffed, and you can, you can still function as a believer, because if you're a true believer, you're a true believer, sin will not take away your, your salvation. Uh, it should be coming less and less as we're sanctified more and more, but you're handcuffed, and sin handcuffs you. The question is, how effective are you? Probably, well, I mean, probably. You're not going to be as effective when you're gripped with sin that entangles. James says that. Um, so you maybe maybe you have habits. Maybe there are things you do that nobody else knows, but God knows that grip you like handcuffs. And you say, I can't get these off. I don't have a handcuff key. I don't have a little comb to take the handcuffs off, which is a trick, by the way. I, I can't do that. I need something else to get this sin off of me, to free me from this. This, I think, is not only the young man who was demon-possessed, not saved, but also believers can be literally in that same type of boat. Not that they're unsaved, and, and you know, not that they've lost their salvation, but they are gripped with fear, with ungodly fear, when we should have godly fear. I mean, I, I, I confess to you, over the last two weeks, three, uh, three weeks, four weeks, I have had ungodly fear, ungodly fear. And as I shared with you guys, you guys know Christine had uh, gallbladder surgery. She's now also going to be scheduled for thyroid to come out again. And they said, hey, it could be cancerous. We don't know. And I want to go, okay, well, no, this is going to be good news. And we have some friends of ours say, hey, listen, when you have this ultrasound, I forget if it's the gallbladder or the thyroid, if they call you back the next day, that is not good news. And if they want you to come immediately, that's not going to be good news. But typically, they never call back that, that, that late. Fast forward. So Christine has her uh, ultrasound. The next day, we're on our way down to that conference in L.A. Guess who calls? The doctor. And says, listen, we need to set up an appointment and get Christine in here. Can you guys come in tomorrow? And we're like, oh, you know, my heart, I confess, I had ungodly fear. Why? Because I was told that, hey, if they call the next day, if they try to get you in like super early, that is not good. Make a long story short, we went down to the conference, said, hey, we're going to go, we came back, set up the appointment, got it rolling, and I shared this with the doctor, the endocrinologist, and I told him what some friends of ours told us, and he kind of laughed, and he said, Mark, that's the, the, how we called you the next day and said, can you come in tomorrow? That's the way it's really supposed to work. It wasn't because it was like panic, panic. So he said, I'm sorry, you've gotten a little bit of a, you know, a panic there. And I said, ah, I did. I mean, I was a little concerned. Well, a little bit, a lot, uh, to say the least. And so anyway, so th that's an example of the sin that I had that, that I was entangled in that gripped me. And, and believe me, guys, that was on my mind when we were down there at that uh, counseling conference down at uh, Santa Clarita at a church down there. That was on my mind. I confess it was on my mind. Why? Because I was not remembering who the master of the sea was, who was sitting in that boat with the disciples. When Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side, I had forgotten that Jesus said, 
let's get in the boat and go the other side. And by the way, I'm the master of the sea and master of the supernatural, and I'm also the creator God. I not only can calm the storm, but hey, guess what? I made the storm. Uh, I can do all of these things. I can say stars, and guess what? They're stars. I do all of these things. Why don't you just trust me on this, despite the outcome? But it's hard. <laughs> it's easy to say, but it's hard to believe it. It's hard to actually do that. <clears throat> all right. Verse 38 says, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. Do you notice the natural response? To those who fear, fear Jesus in a godly way. And I've already kind of talked about this. That's a natural response. If you fear God in a godly way, a natural response is to say, I want to be with him. I want to be as close as I can and know as much about him as I can. I want to know his word. I want to just drink this stuff in. But I confess, and some of you guys know this, I have a reading program thing that I do every morning. But sometimes, I and I confess, I'm sitting there going... Okay, I gotta rest my eyes just for a few minutes. Sometimes it's pretty early in the morning, but it's hard. It's hard to do. But uh, but I but I will also tell you this: that stick with if whatever it is you do, stick with that because God is faithful and God is faithful. And when I when my eyes go bunk, open up, and sometimes it's three in the morning. Yep. Sometimes it's pretty early in the morning. I, I immediately think, okay, a cup of coffee, boom, and I'm getting ready to read. I want to get going. And then once I settle in, sometimes it's hard to go, okay, I've got 10 chapters, I've got to go, here we go, here we go. And it's hard for me to stay focused and, and continue to enjoy them. And so I have to say, Lord, give me the strength to do that, even though it's early. I want, it, I want to know you more. My heart sometimes does not. It just doesn't. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Sometimes it does not want to get to know you more. Why? Because I love my sin. I want to. I want to. There's a sense of, I, I want to have this fear. I want to have this ungodly fear. And then I have to say, God, that is not, that is not what a believer does. A believer is what I'm going to trust. I am no different than those disciples sitting in that boat when they said, Lord, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? I mean, that is, that's about the rudest thing to say to the Creator, is it not? Don't you care? And yet, I, I've, I've said the same thing. Uh, you probably all said the same thing. God, don't you care? God, are you even there? That right there, by the way, is sin. We know God cares. A hymn tells us that. Does Jesus care? Da, 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 da. So we know that's true. All right. Thank you, God bless you. Jesus gives the man the instructions in the next verse. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Um, sorry, I, I get ahead of my notes, and so I don't really... I, so I, if you hear it, you go, didn't you just say that? That's because I did. Well, this is a great question or a, or a self-examination for us to consider. How much are we telling others about Jesus and his saving power? Notice that, the, by the way, I just made an observation uh, as I was going through this. Not just now, but I mean earlier. Uh, that the dis you don't really hear the disciples don't really have much to say when Jesus casts out the pigs or casts out the demons into the pigs. You don't hear, hear them go, "Wow, man, this is great, Jesus!" Oh, you don't nothing. The scripture is silent, and probably rightfully so, because they would not fully remember. This is they had not said, "Truly, you are the son." They had not said that yet. Not yet. Paul says in Second Corinthians thirteen five. 
as we think about how much we are telling others about the saving power of Jesus, he says this, a verse you guys know, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So as believers, we need to test ourselves. How do we do that? We need to say, Lord, how much am I sharing the gospel? How much am I sharing the gospel about you? How much am I loving you? How much am I reading your word? I mean, uh, when when Paul was standing before, uh, I think it's Agrippa and Felix. I think he's before Felix. When he says, I told people about Jesus in repentance and to do the works that are consistent. It's Acts 24. To do the works that are consistent with repentance. That's what I preached to them. Remember when Paul's on trial and he's in Caesarea? That's what I preached to them. To repent and now do the works that are consistent with repentance. And that's the examination for us. Are we doing the works that are consistent with our repentance? Because it's easy to say, oh, that was so convicting. Thank you, Pastor, for that message. Did we go out the door? I've said it. We've all said it. But are we saying... Are we, are, we, are we hearing that and saying, Pastor, that was so convicting. I have learned. Here's what I've learned. And here's how I'm changing. Here's how I'm going to change. Here's the plan I'm putting into place. Here's what I want to do. Upon examining ourselves, do we have Christ as our Savior? And maybe that's a question. I had an opportunity to share that, just literally tell those words to, uh, tell those words to somebody in the last three, four weeks. It may very well be that you are not saved. This is a person that would tell you, oh, no, I'm saved. I, yeah, no, no. I've gone to church all of my life. I've, I've done these things. I, I know the Bible. But I had, I had to ask that question to test, have them test themselves. Upon examining ourselves, do we have Christ as our Savior? Have we placed our total trust in him as our sovereign Lord? Not just Lord, not just a... Is that the Sunday school bell? No. What a great idea. That reminds me of like when I was a kid. I think we had the same type of thing. What a memory. If you've not done that, I would strongly urge you to place your, place your trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. The Bible says that if we place our trust in Him and Him alone and repent of our sins, which is a turning away... Remember, repent, military, about face, literally... Um, and repent of our sins, which is to turn away from our sins. He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it, I had a bunch of unrighteousness when I was fearful, when I was not remembering. This is this is the sovereign God sitting in the boat. Unrighteousness. Do you have the godly fear that is needed to be a born-again true believer? Or perhaps your fear is that you just hope you'll get to heaven based upon your good works. And we all know how that doesn't work. It doesn't work out. My prayer for you this morning is that you have trusted Christ as your Savior for your only way to heaven. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Him. He is indeed the Savior of the world. And that ultimately is what the disciples concluded on their next boat trip. Their first one, they asked a rhetorical, well, I don't know if it's a rhetorical question. Who is this guy that even the winds and the sea obey him? The next time they got into the boat and the violent storm came up, you guys know that story, when Jesus walked on the water, Peter does his thing, walks on the water, they both get Peter and Jesus both get into the boat. Remember what Jesus had to say? He didn't say anything. The, call, the sea calmed. Nothing needed to be said. It was calm, and where were they? Instantly, they were where they needed to be. 
between Capernaum and Magdala. Between Capernaum and Magdala, someplace right in here, over in the Jerez, the different area of opposite of the Sea of the same side of Galilee, of Galilee, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's the question for us: Do we have godly fear or do we have ungodly fear? And guys, I, I'm telling you, I think that goes back and forth oftentimes. And, and when we recognize, I have ungodly fear, we need to repent of that because that is not godly. Therefore, it's not sin. It's not faith. It's sin. It's one of those two. It's either faith or it's sin. And I can't sit here and fill, and nobody else can sit here. Your spouses, your children, your parents cannot sit here and go, you have ungodly fear. They may look at, their act at your actions of that and see that and, and based upon what they think, but ultimately only you know that answer. Well, God knows the answer. But only you know that answer. No other human knows that answer. And we need to be quick to repent of that and say, God, I have ungodly fear. Help me in my my disbelief. Hmm. Like the man coming down off, when the men came down off the hill, Transfiguration, uh, Matthew, or, uh, John 6, or whatever, wherever it was, uh, somewhere, um, when he came down off the hill, and I have faith, help me in my, un help me, I have belief, help me in my unbelief. Lord, I have, I lack faith. I have God, ungodly fear. Help me in my ungodly fear to have godly fear. When I have godly fear, I recognize that you are the master of the sea and the master of the supernatural. You do all that. Any other comments or any comments or things you might have? Thank you for bearing with me. Sorry I ran a couple minutes late. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much just for your sovereign hand that convicts us. Your word is truth. So, Father, uh, cause us to remember that and to recognize that we need godly fear that recognizes that you are indeed the Savior of the world. The people, the Jews of the Old Testament did not have godly fear. They had ungodly fear. They feared everything but you. That was the problem. That's why they, the Bible says they never entered your rest. They all perished. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending us the master of the sea and the master of the supernatural. These things I pray in your son's name. Amen.